Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast about Jewish food. I'm Beth Schenker, your host, and today I'll be talking with my guest, Emily Pastor. If you aren't yet familiar with that name, no worries, I'm going to tell you all about her. Emily Pastor is the author of two cookbooks, Food Swap, Specialty Recipes for Bartering, Sharing, and Giving, and The Joys of Jewish Preserving, which was just published last year. Emily is a graduate of Princeton University and the University of Michigan Law School. She redirected her career from law to food after the birth of her second child. She's the writer and photographer behind the website West of the Loop, which has been called a family food blog to savor. As the founder of the Chicago Food Swap, a community event where handmade foods are bartered and exchanged, Emily is a leader in the national food swap movement, and we'll talk about that later. Emily teaches and speaks on garden-to-table cooking, canning, and fermentation throughout the country. Hi, Emily, and welcome to The Big Schmear. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I thought I would start, I, I read, I love your cookbook, and so one of the fun things for me about cookbooks is to just read the intro and find out what's behind all these great recipes. And So I know that food... Jewish food in particular played an important role in your life growing up. And I wonder if maybe you could share your experience of what that was like and what what was your experience of Jewish food as a kid? Yeah, so part of it has to do with the fact that I was from an interfaith family. And my fa- my late father was Jewish, my mother is not. And we spent the Jewish holidays with my father's side of the family but weren't particularly religious. So for me, those meals, you know, the Passover Seder, the high Mm -hmm. holiday dinner, that was what Judaism was to me at that time. Mm -hmm. I've since gone through the conversion process. I married a a man from a um, much more observant household and, and now we're actually belong to a temple and do the whole other, you know, the religious part. But when I was young, to me, that was a lot of what Judaism was about was those family occasions and this wonderful food prepared by my grandmother who I adored, my aunt, my father's sister who I adore, who's an amazing cook and actually went on to have a very successful career in, in food. Mm. Um, so the food was excellent (laughs) and, and so much of, um, how I think of myself as a, as a Jew is as a Jewish cook or from that, a really culinary tradition. Mm Mm-hmm. Not a bad tradition to come from. No, a great one. <laughs> yeah. What were some? Do you remember what some of your favorite foods were back then? Well, matzo ball soup. I would say my grandmother's matzo ball soup. That's sort of one of everyone's favorites. But a little more obscure was my grandmother made homemade kreplock from scratch. Oh, my aunt did that. It's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of work because the recipe starts with make a brisket, you know, <laughs> um, and then you know, and then it goes on from there. So that was those came out of the high holidays, the homemade brisket and the homemade chicken soup. Uh-huh. Very special. Everybody, my father adored it. Everyone knew this was a big deal. Yeah. It's, oh, it sounds amazing. And what a great opportunity to just be in that nice family atmosphere and all of that. It's just adds to the feeling about the food. I know also that when you were, let me think, is this college or maybe beyond college, when you had the experience of living with a Sephardic family and so you got introduced to a very different kind of Jewish cooking. 
So what was that like? Yeah, that was in college. I was studying abroad um, in France. And what had happened was I had, um, there was a sort of orientation period prior to the main year we were spending in Paris. And I was put with a very conservative, very Catholic family for this orientation period. And I felt a little uncomfortable. And I asked the woman who was in charge of placing us with our permanent families, I said, could I just maybe not be with this very Catholic family? And what she did was she put me with, I think, the only Jewish family <laughs> that were hosts. And what a gift, because these this family, they were Sephardic Jews. They were from North Africa, French of French extraction, French Jewish extraction, but had grown up in, in North Africa and then left North Africa after independence. And it was, first of all, being in France versus growing up in Washington, D.C., where I grew up, first of all, such a different experience because you really perceive what it's like to be a tiny minority as a Jew. They were very conscious of being this, you know, in this tiny, tiny group in France. It's very different than growing up in a big city on the East Coast or Chicago, where many, you know, many of your friends, many of the people you knew besides yourself were Jewish. But then in addition, it was this whole other tradition, not culinary tradition, but other, uh, just a different celebration. So I I spent the whole year with them. So I had a Seder with them. And then we had the party that they have at the end of Passover, which was totally new for me, which is a a Sephardic tradition. Yeah, tell me about that. Is there special food that is just at that event as opposed to the beginning for this? beginning seders? Yeah, so this is actually after the holiday ends and they reintroduce flour to the home. Ah. And my French mother actually decorated the table. She made like pyramids of flour and stuck these dried wheat stalks, which (gasps) I think she saved from year to year in them. And she made a couscous because she was from North Africa. Well, of course. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It was amazing and completely new to me. I gather there are different, there are a lot of, I've researched this a little, there are, it is a Sephardic tradition to have a party at the end of Passover, and it takes different forms in different places. I think in Israel now, there's a celebration called Mimuna, very popular. Oh, that sounds At the weird. end yeah. of, uh, yeah. Wow. So, I'm going to jump to the topic of your new cookbook, yeah. and I, I remember seeing the title and thinking, and the title is... Uh, oh, remind me what the title is. It was The Joys of Jewish Preserving. Right. And so I remember looking at that and that's beautiful cover. And I thought to myself, hmm, preserving Jewish. Wow, I never really thought of it as in that way. And so I'm thinking canning. Okay, pickles, which is, I guess, the obvious thing to think about. I wonder if you, how did you get interested in this? What, what was your path to preserving food? Yeah, so I um, I started preserving a little over 10 years ago, um, and it was actually inspired by my daughter's food allergies. My daughter, who's now a teenager, at the, when she was a very little girl, had many food allergies, including to things as basic as like wheat, dairy, eggs. So it was very limiting what we could feed her and what I could do in the kitchen with her, because I'd always sort of dreamed about you know baking mm-hmm. and, and doing other things in the kitchen with my kids. So yeah, I started preserving because it was something I could do in the kitchen with my daughter without involving any of the foods that she was allergic to. And we're so lucky here in the Chicago area, we have these amazing farmer's markets and we get all this beautiful fruit from nearby Michigan. And I was always the kind of person who was overbuying at the farmer's market. You know, I'd come home and I'd say, honey, 
eight quarts of strawberries were the same <laughs> price as six. And my husband would say, what are you going to do with eight quarts of strawberries? So um, I, that's why that was sort of my uh, impetus to start preserving. But I, was, I loved uh, the process of it. I loved having that, those tricks in my sort of cooking repertoire to, it, I think it prevents food waste. I think it helps us eat more locally and more seasonally and all of those things. So I really fell in love with the whole process of canning. And I was doing that for several years, which led me to the food swap, which we might talk about we later. We definitely will. Oh, good. And um, But then also, in terms of connecting it to you know my other passion, which is Jewish cuisine, it just occurred to me one day that so many of our iconic, particularly in the Ashkenazi tradition, which is what I was more familiar with at the time, but so many of our iconic Jewish foods are either preserves themselves, and you mentioned pickles, sauerkraut might be another example, or incorporate a preserved element. And what I mean by that is when I, I say something like, we put jam in our rugelach, we put jam in our hamantash, and we put applesauce on our latkes. Those are all... Right. Preserves. So when you start to, and this is just off the top of your head, you start to sort of tick off, oh yeah, there's a lot to it. And that was before I even started researching the book and realizing, in fact, how rich the preserving tradition was, not only on the Ashkenazi side, but also on the Sephardic side as well. So let me ask you this first, because that brings up a lot of questions for me. Oh yeah, there was a lot there. Um, Yeah, there was. Do you have a definition of Jewish preserved foods? Does that make sense? Yes, I. It makes sense. I'm not sure. Um, it, it's if if there is a definition, it's complex. <laughs> it's multi layered because certainly there was a a time until very recently, really, where preserving foods was a matter of survival, and that was certainly true for everybody. You know, for our Ashkenazi ancestors who were living in a really harsh climate in Russia or Poland or Ukraine, they had to preserve to get through the winter, but so did their neighbors, certainly, their Gentile neighbors. Yeah. Um, to me, what is distinctive about Jewish preserving comes in, in large part from the kosher laws, and there's sort of two parts to that. First, because of the prohibition on mixing meat and dairy... I think there's always been a real emphasis in our culinary tradition on fruit and fruit as a way to end a meal. Because, you know, before the days of Crisco and soy this and soy that, you know, if you couldn't, if you were having a meat meal and you really couldn't have dairy afterwards, you were going to end it maybe with some fruit, Um, maybe a fruit compote, maybe, you know, dried fruits. But if you were going to be enjoying fruit all year long, you were absolutely, and you were in that part of the world you were going to have to preserve it because, of course, particularly in the Ashkenazi world, short growing seasons, harsh climates. So that was one thing is that, you know, this emphasis on fruit. And the second is, again, having to do with the kosher laws, there comes a time when people, maybe in the 19th century, um, starting in the 20th century, where the population becomes more and more urban, less and less rural uh, in Europe, in places where our Sephardic you know, ancestors are as well, the North Africa, the Middle East, and even here in the U.S. And people start buying more of their own, buying more foods versus growing their own foods. And so you could then start going to the store and buying jam or buying pickles. But if you were keeping kosher, this is long before there are kosher hectares on yeah. things, 
the need to do those things yourself persists in the Jewish community among people who are keeping kosher for longer. So what this, those two things kind of combine, in my view, and I make this argument in the book, to come up with a rich and distinctive tradition of Jewish preserving. Makes, that makes total sense. And was there, is there a different component to it if, you're, if you were Sephardic or same kind of principles, maybe just different foods that were preserved? Yes. There, I mean, I would say the same principles certainly apply. They definitely had access to different ingredients, and not just and not just what you think. Not just you know, oh, the you know Ashkenazi Jews maybe had apples and cherries, and the Sephardic Jews have dates and figs. It's even more complex than that because, for example, sugar is an ingredient that, until well into the 19th century, is very expensive in the Ashkenazi world because it has to be imported from somewhere else. But sugar in the Wherever the Arabs went, starting in the seven eight hundreds, the Arabs spread sugar. So our Sephardic brothers and sisters who were in that you know, Mediterranean, North Africa, the Middle East, they had ready access to sugar. So when you compare, for example, the different traditions, there's a lot of low sugar preserving in the Ashkenazi tradition, a lot of fruit butters that are cooked down, um, made with very little sugar and trying to get as much sweetness out of the fruit as possible. In the Sephardic tradition, by contrast, they're doing things that I call like, in this, the word would have been like a dulce or a spoon sweet. You know, these perfect halves of apricots or perfect beautiful figs preserved in a very dense, sweet sugar syrup. Really different. Very, very different. different. Oh, that's so interesting. So you talked a little bit about canning and or the water bath Mm -hmm. and so that seems to be a constant and would you say that that's that's it that's how you do preserving or are there other methods that are either new or that people have tried so is there other things we should think about or is should we just stick with those well I would say the other big one is fermenting you know which again very old tradition not just for the Jews for everybody, but but for the Jews as well, of course, when we think about those classic deli kosher dill pickles, the sauerkraut on our Reuben sandwich, those are fermented uh, right. foods versus the canned foods. So there's a few recipes in the book for uh, fermented oh. foods, those two namely, and that's, I don't, I probably do more canning than fermenting, but I never let the summer go by without putting up some of these fermented kosher dill pickles because they are my family's like hands down favorite. Whoa. I just, I'm trying to picture what your kitchen looks like with all this stuff cooking and steaming and it must be amazing. And the smells (laughs) must be incredible. Yeah. Well, sometimes the fermenting smells can be a little (laughs) off-putting. My kids, I was, I was, I keep it kind of in the basement. I'm lucky to have a basement, but um, I was fermenting some stuff in this closet that was off the off the kitchen. The kids were opening it up and going, "It smells like feet. Why oh, does it no. smell like shoes in this closet?" I said, "It must be you. I don't, you know, I don't know why." Um, but it, it, my kitchen's very busy in the summer. I will say that. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, Emily, could you explain a little bit about what this water process is, because it's kind of the basis for all. Preserves. Absolutely. So what we're talking about is we call it water bath canning, and that's because it's we literally have a bath of boiling water that we submerge the jars in. 
And basically what happens is, is you have, you know, canning jars, just your typical ball jars, and you will fill those jars with whatever you're making that day, be it a jam, a jelly, a pickle, a chutney, a relish. There is a limited universe of products that's safe to do by this method, and they are products that are high in acid. Mm -hmm. And I know that can be intimidating to people, like, how am I supposed to know if it's high in acid? But this is where, like, good cookbooks and good recipes will... Guide you. Will guide you. They won't, there won't be any canning recipes, you know, that are not safe and tested. So it's these high acid foods that I was just mentioning. And you, you know, you fill up your jar. If you made a jam that day or if you were making pickles, you would fill it up and you'll have on the stove, you know, a bath of boiling water. And you put the filled jars with their lids back on them. Not, you need to leave a little bit of space at the top of the jar. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, is you put the jars in the boiling water And while they're in the water, the heat from the boiling water will penetrate to the center of the jar and kill any bacteria that's in there. Hmm. The other thing that happens is, and remember how we left a little bit of room at the top. Yeah. When things, if we can all cast our mind back to high school chemistry, when things are heated up, they expand. Right. So the product in the jar, your jam, whatever it is, expands. It pushes out any oxygen that's left in the jar. And then when you, after it's been in the jar for, excuse me, after it's been in the water for a certain amount of time, and it might, the time is going to depend because different things need different amounts of time for the water to penetrate all Mm -hmm. the way to the center and that requisite temperature. But after 10 minutes, maybe 15, maybe 20, you take the jar out and when things cool down, they contract. And what happens then is the lid will seal. And right. that, it'll sort of do that thunk. Yeah. And what you have now is a product that has been heated up to kill any bacteria. There is no oxygen in it because oxygens are sort of our bad guy when it comes to any kind of preserving anything, mm-hmm. um, but especially food. And it has a vacuum seal. So no oxygen or anything right. else can get in. And that product is now shelf stable. You can keep it in your pantry, in your closet, in your basement. And without refrigerating it, and it will be safe and good for up to one year. And how do you know that the process was a success? That's a great question. If the jar sealed, it's a success. And there's different ways to know. You might hear it seal. You can certainly see it. There's a little button in the center of the lid that will depress. And if it's sealed correctly, you shouldn't be able to... It shouldn't just come off. It should feel like it's sealed on there. Uh-huh. You should be able to pick it up by the lid and it's going to stay on. And if it's sealed, then it's safe. Hmm. Then you've done it right. I think that's the part that scares me. I think I'm, I'm not going to do all that technical stuff right and then I'll do bad things with my food. Well, you know what? And if it doesn't, and if for some reason it didn't seal then all you do is pop it in the fridge. The food is still good and delicious. It's just not shelf-stable. I've had so many people say to me, oh, my jar didn't seal, so I threw it away. (gasps) No. (laughs) No, it's still delicious, good, beautiful food. It just needs to go in the refrigerator like anything else. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. See, not so scary. No, not so scary. So I guess my last question would be, and you, you kind of answer this in a way, is... So how does all this food preserving fit into your Jewish life, your Jewish food life with your family? It's, it's sort of the little things like, you know, when it's apple picking season, 
often like right around the high holidays, maybe even, you know, on that sort of lazy, like Rosh Hashanah afternoon, like we'll go apple picking and we'll pick a whole bunch of apples and I'll make applesauce. And then three months later on Hanukkah and I make the latkes and we open that homemade applesauce that I made three months ago and we put it on our latkes. And, you know, there's not, I mean, of course going out and buying yummy applesauce to put in your latkes is super special because the important thing is, is it's Hanukkah and you're having latkes, but we do really enjoy, you know, putting homemade applesauce on our latkes or, you know, whenever I make rugalak, I try to put my homemade jam in it when it's Purim and I'm making chamantash and I fill them with homemade jam and it just is a little something extra um, a little extra love that mm-hmm. I, we, everyone who cooks Jewish food puts a ton of love into it. This is like my way of putting a little extra homemade love into it. Oh, that's a lovely way to end, end this <laughs> podcast this week. So thank you so much, Emily. This has really been so fun and I've learned a ton. Well, thank you. What a, I'm so happy to talk to you and to reach your wonderful audience. Thanks so much for listening to The Big Shmir today. Our recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. Our theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo for their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Be sure to check out thebigschmear.com to find recipes shared by my guests. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and to like us on Facebook. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening and happy eating. <laughs>